Sustainably Influenced, the podcast guiding you through the minefield of sustainability with your hosts Charlotte Williams and Bianca Foley. This season we are deep diving into the relationship between fashion and sustainability, discussing everything from intersectionality to tech-led innovations in the industry and what consumers can do to make a real positive impact. years sustainability has become the fashion community's latest buzzword. The definition of sustainability functions on three pillars, economy, society and environment. However, the link to environmentalism has come to the forefront while the human aspect of fashion takes a back seat. In today's episode, we are joined by the incredible Arja Baba. Arja's upcoming book, Consumed, continues the important work by exploring the endemic injustices in our consumer industries and confronting the uncomfortable truth behind why we consume the way we do. So let us get into it. Thank you for joining us, first of all. Thank you for having me. Anytime. This has been one that we've been waiting for, so I'm glad finally for season four that you're with us. So what do you mean when you say that our society prizes us on being consumers and not citizens. I think we're raised to be a part of the consumerist society from a young age. I think about my niece and she knew what a credit card was when she was like two, three years old, but she didn't know anything about democracy or laws or how to change the law or that sort of stuff. But consumerism is just like it's like fed to us through media, movies, et cetera, everywhere you look. If you count the amount of ads you see in a day, have you ever done that? I dropped off at like a hundred one day. And it's one of those things that's in films. Every film that I love and is a part of my history always has some sort of great makeover scene, pretty woman, big mistake, clueless. And so consumerism is a part of our culture and we don't even recognize it because it's so subtle but pernicious but being a citizen and really feeling powerful in a world where our voices actually do have power that's not a part of our culture and I'd like to see that change. I totally agree with that. I always try to find a link between education and anything we're talking about but I think that this is an educational issue in the sense that we teach consumerism at a really early age. We don't teach anything else of worth unless it links to a consumerist society. And I think it's quite telling of where we're going and it's quite telling of the fashion industry, the agriculture industry and the problems that we're having because that's just not what we're geared up for. We had we recorded an episode yesterday and I don't know where it's going to sit in terms of our time frame, but we were talking about agriculture and basically just saying the way we've been farming for so long has been built on capitalism, essentially. Getting things quick to the consumer one at a time we only want you know x product and not really focusing on biodiversity not focusing on what the world naturally looks like what the earth naturally looks like and I think this can link in so many different ways to education because we're teaching our children now this is how the world is this is how you farm this is how you eat this is how you buy and it's quite scary I asked my sister recently if my niece and nephew were getting education on climate emergency in school and she said she didn't think they were and I'm like great that's just great so yeah I think I completely agree with you but just in general traditional education and the true history of the world aka not from the lens of the quote-unquote victors but from the lens of 
colonialism, not there. I had to research all that independently. And basically, the minute I got out of the traditional school system was the minute I started to think more deeply about all of these topics. But it wasn't pushed through me through any sort of traditional education that I had. And I think that's the problem. But not even just the stuff that I'm talking about. I mean, like in American school systems, they can tell you how to pay your taxes and they don't. You know what I mean? Like yeah. how to balance a checkbook, not that checks are becoming kind of outdated, how to pay your taxes. There are certain life skills that I think would have been a great class in high school that, you know, instead I was supposed to take like geometry, which I don't use at all. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because I had this exact conversation with my stepdaughter. She was saying to me, she was like, I don't have, we've opened her up like a current account and her bank doesn't allow her to just have a savings pot within that because she's with one of the big high street banks. And I was saying to her, I was like, do you not save anything? She went, no, whatever I get, I spend. I was like, do they not teach you anything in school? Acting like I didn't go to school in the UK. Like I completely <laughs> forgot what the syllabus was like. But she said, no, they're trying to do some more things in like PSHE that they do, where it's a bit more about finance, how to manage your money, how to save, how to set up for things. But I think it's because the parents asked for it. There's nothing in the national curriculum here, especially, that focuses on maintaining your finances and creating wealth and not spending. Everything is targeted mm. to, as we said, consumerism and capitalism, where you're taught to spend from her age. I mean, think back to those kind of old maths equations that you do like in nursery. It was if you buy two apples and you buy another two apples, how many do you have? But it's all focused around physicality of buying something and actually getting things and owning yeah. more yeah it was the same in the U.S. I mean my education was ex exactly the same my parents didn't give us an allowance and they didn't just give us money because we wanted it because a they couldn't and two they were like what is that teaching you go and get like a part-time job from the age of eight I would say I was dog sitting cat sitting paper delivery that sort of stuff and whenever I would get paid for many of those things, my mom would say, now, how much did you make? And I'd tell her and she'd take roughly 75% of that and put it in the piggy bank and be like, there you go. And then you have that other 25% and you can go and buy yourself a candy bar, you know, or something like that, you know? That. But it took her doing that very early on for me to develop the habits of being like, right, you put most of it away. And there are times when you can't put most of it away because that's just all of your life expenses are ultimately more than what you're making, which I've gone through several times in my life. But I do think that managing your money and all of this stuff, it starts from a very young age. And I feel like we're letting the youth down. And this idea that cheaper is better is just mm. always, always, always tied to capitalism and I think that cheaper is not always better in the case of clothing it's not at all but that's what people have been trying to believe yeah and also with teaching through the use of Klarna and you know buy now pay later who are linked with a, I don't know if this is true I I might be making this up but maybe with the BFC and something to do with London Fashion Week but there is a link with Klarna and fashion and showcasing that commercial side I guess fashion is yeah. the fashion industry you know it's got so many problems but adding 
pay it by now, pay later onto that does not help. Uh, one of my friends wrote an article about this and it's basically, they're making debt look aspirational. Yeah. yeah. And that's so you a can, problem. By designer, yeah. you can be like anyone, all of the celebrities, which I'm all about accessibility. So I kind of like that to an extent, but I guess it's figuring out a way that you can do that. Is it accessible though to be able to buy anything but maybe you don't need to buy anything no is that is that accessibility that we have to like take that apart what is pushing people to feel like you need to have 20 dresses from this brand that's not accessible that's success (laughs) you know and that's what's pushed in our society but then I think we tell ourselves that's making it more accessible but in actuality I think we have to really go back further and be like, is that accessibility or is that a messy message that has been pushed on us and a weird desire that we don't naturally have, but somehow our society has told us like, this is the way, you know? Yeah. And they do it with everything. They do it with TV. They do it with social media content. They do it with influencers, which we'll touch on later. It feeds into everything that the youth consume Yes. So I'm with you on that. But I want to move, whilst we're kind of mentioning accessibility, kind of move on to a different topic. Um, Can you talk to us about the link between racism, colonialism, and our current fashion industry? So this is where we talk about how education is failing us. Colonialism. (laughs) It's so much a part of our history, but yet everybody's like, they were brave explorers. And then they went to this new world and they made friends with everyone and then they were like here take our land that's not exactly how it works so it's one of those things where it's like we need to look at all of our like just history and start to really pull the gaps in and and fill in the gaps because I think we've been done a disservice by the history of the world and the way it's been taught and told to us but you know when people look at the fashion industry I think because it's considered women's stuff it's written off as frivolous and silly and you know uh and so I think that's part of the problem with us not really seeing this industry for what it really is is that it's very easy to write off something because patriarchy has deemed it silly frivolous oh look at queer people that sort of stuff but in actuality the fashion industry is responsible for a large percentage of the jobs on our planet It can make or break a GDP in a country, and uh, it's responsible for a lot of oppression, which dates back to hundreds of years. When you look at colonialism and India, and you look at how the East India Company basically wanted to dismantle the cotton trade and garment industry in India because they were the top producers at the time, so there was a deliberate drive to take those resources away from a country that was thriving and doing really well through colonialism. And then don't get me started on the occupied states of America and slavery. What were my ancestors picking? Cotton, you know, and indigo has a really long history there as well. Indigo is something that most of our indigo today is synthetic, which isn't naturally, which I would argue isn't probably the best for us, but in general, indigo has been really something that people have raided parts of Africa for. And so 
when we look at all of the resources that go into our current fashion industry, there's been a lot of pillaging that's gone on in order to get it to where it is today. And so I just hope to peel back the layers and send people on a little bit of a journey down that spiral. And and next time you think that you just want to buy that 20 pound dress and it's frivolous and silly and has nothing to do with you. Remember, you've been, I guess, told that this is how you should feel about this system. In actuality, it represents a larger system of oppression. But if we just want to bring in race in like the most blunt terms ever, okay, who makes your clothing? Black and brown people. And when you are done with those clothes and you donate them, they go to a charity and between 10 to 20% get sold and the other 80% gets dumped in the landfill. Now, where do landfills exist? In poor black and brown neighborhoods, sometimes white neighborhoods too. But as we know from the work of Dr. Robert Bullard in the United States, there was a deliberate drive to put landfills in black neighborhoods in the United States. So you get this garment. It's been made by someone who has been underpaid, who was most likely a non-white person. You wear it really quickly and rapidly, and then you go, oh, I'm going to give it to a charity, except the charity gets so much clothing, they can't sell all of that. So then they either have to trash it, or they wrap it up and send it in a nice little bundle to the Global South, where another black or brown person, non-white person, is charged with disposing of the clothing waste, and that is causing an ecological crisis in parts of the Global South. So at the start of this chain, It is non-white people being shat on at the end of this chain. It's non-white people. And I would argue some poor white people getting shat on too, but it's never going to be a person of economic means who is wealthy and white at the end of any of these chains or at the start. And I think that's what people need to understand is that Fashion Rev did a campaign always every year called Who Made My Clothes? And I think one thing who made my clothes illustrates really clearly is who's making the clothes. It's largely not white people. Yeah. And largely women. Yeah. Largely women, 80% women. So it's also a feminist issue. There's all sorts of intersections that you can weave into this conversation. Yeah, definitely. You know, if we even like look at where the resources come from, okay, like don't get me wrong, England you're cool. I moved here, but we're not exactly producing stuff these days, are we? If you look at where all the resources come from, if you look at the fruit and veg in your refrigerator currently, if you look at who made your clothing, where is this stuff all coming from? Oh, right. It's coming from countries in the global South where brown and black people have never really gotten a fair deal on things because of colonialism and exploitation. And uh, that's what runs the system. And we have to start being aware of this and start thinking about ways to get ourselves out of the system. And I think in some ways, trapping us in a loop of constant consumerism is a great way to get you to never question any of this stuff. Definitely. And as you said, in the UK, I mean, most of our stuff comes from somewhere else. The US as well. I mean, we are a teeny tiny island. We don't Mm -hmm. produce that much. We don't have the climate for it most of the time. But as you were speaking, it got me thinking about the Great British Empire and what we did. And we went and we sought out all these things from these other places. And it's just, it's such 
a wider topic that I think if we really, really got into the roots of it, we'd end up speaking for about be about, about a four hour long podcast. Oh, it would be, it could go on for days, but also <laughs> America. And for me, coming to all of these sort of, you know, connections wasn't an overnight thing. But one of the things I began to realize when I became like a young adult in the States is that both of my parents are from areas that were once thriving hubs in America. And in the 90s, when everybody decided to ship all jobs overseas because you could exploit people over there, what did it do to those towns? It made them economically depressed, you know? And so my dad is from York, Pennsylvania, and I think they used to produce bulldozers, Caterpillar, I think, Harley Davidson. They, They were a thriving hub. Baltimore, Maryland, where it's near where I'm from, Baltimore has an industrial museum. The stuff that Baltimore made in the 50s, you would be shocked. I mean, they made skis, bowling balls, everything. Baltimore was a hub. My mom is from Mobile, Alabama, also a hub, also now economically depressed. And so I kind of began to look at where my parents were from and what those towns look like today. And a lot of them are super economically depressed, drugs on the rise, unemployment, that sort of thing. And I began to sort of notice the empty factories. I began to sort of notice the train tracks where the grass has overgrown the the tracks because nothing's really being shipped in or out anymore. And I began to really make some connections with the lack of manufacturing in America and what it has ultimately done to people and towns and places. I used to drive to visit my grandmother in Mobile, Alabama every summer. I used to do that drive by myself until I realized that it still wasn't safe for Black people to drive on the road in America by themselves. And then I had to stop. But every summer I would do this and I would notice as you drove down the eastern shoreboard, it just got consecutively more economically depressed the farther south you drove. And one of the things I noticed was that you would drive by towns that had strip malls boarded up that sort of thing and the only thing that was thriving in the town were the churches the gun stores and the walmarts and i began to be like hmm something's going on and i don't like it so i didn't really reach a lot of these conclusions within like the last five years i would say i've been thinking about this sort of stuff my entire adult life and really going, wait a minute, I don't like what's going on. And also remember, for a lot of people in their 20s, fast fashion is all that they know. They have never lived in a world without fast fashion. One of the things that's great about being my age is that I'm a bit older and I actually remember what the world was like before fast fashion dominated everywhere. And so I think in some ways, age can be a strength on social media in these conversations because a lot of, some people don't know anything different, that we could have a different world. Yeah, that's such a great point. I remember when I was younger, I got a job really early. So I had money really early. I was 15. It was, I don't know if it was legal at the time, but I worked at m and when I was 15. But I had my debit card and the first thing I bought on trend, Oh, on brand for me was from eBay. Then the next thing I bought was from ASOS. And then I became obsessed with ASOS at the age of 15, 16. And that was 10, 15, I don't know how it went. 15 years, yeah, 15 years ago. So I've, I'm quite young, relatively 30, I guess. And I still only 
no fast fashion in that sense because we were being push tv adverts we were being yeah yeah Mm -hmm. just like talking about fashion in a very different way we had top shop university was you had to buy a new dress from top shop and a new dress from miss selfridge every time you went out and that was different to it is now because it was a lot more expensive yeah it was but we did it we still had the ability I don't know how but we still did it I want to go back to your eBay point because eBay is a crucial part of my history and beginning to realize that we in our society actually overproduce everything, everything. like everything. And that's the thing. People think that there is supposed scarcity because stores like to sort of drip feed things to us in order to drive desire. But in actuality, we overproduce everything. And I was the early adopter to internet shopping in my family. I was the first person to sort of have eBay. I was the first person to have Amazon. I was the first person to be like, yo, Amazon is fucked. Um, And so basically I was that person. And I started buying my clothing on eBay when I was 18, 19. And the reason why, I don't know if you remember this, is you're quite a bit younger than me, but... Do you remember when everybody was really into like super designer denim and it was like yeah. every week there would be like a different every month there would be like a different denim that everyone was like this is a new jean to have and like those jeans were normally around $200 a pop like they they weren't messing yeah. around with those prices and I was like right I want the jeans but I can't afford that so how do I do it and one day I was just messing about on eBay and I started just typing in and I started to get just you know so many pairs of these jeans and it was very easy to tell like some was coming from like liquidators some of it was coming directly from somebody who had bought them and just got sick of them because we know rich people are like oh I don't like these this week sell them you know (laughs) and I just began to understand that anything that I wanted in the store if I waited for long enough it would always show up on eBay always and then I began to be like how could this be oh we make a lot of everything there is excess of everything on this planet I also began to notice that like some brands you could type it in and it would be shipping directly from China which means that like somebody from the factory was probably selling a second of that brand and I'm thinking yeah there's something fishy going on here all of these prices are weird and funny and if you can find it on eBay, then that probably means we make too much of it, especially if it's currently in the store. I just don't know. And so that sort of, that was another turning point where I started to really look at all these systems and be like, yeah, things are a bit weird. It's nice to know that you had that kind of critical thinking way back then, way back when, when nobody else was really talking about it. It wasn't as prolific in the media to be ethical was almost it almost had like negative connotations back then I think dirty hippie were... you're a dirty hippie <laughs> <laughs> it's making me think back every time I hear the word denim whenever we're doing the podcast I think of Charlotte's Miss 60 jeans that she wanted oh my god I was just thinking <laughs> <laughs> were you obsessed up... with Miss 60 no so my eBay obsession is exactly the same story as yours mm-hmm. in the sense that my mum would never buy me what I wanted neither were mine never I because she couldn't afford it so I would be like mom there was like these this specific I vividly remember the cut like low rise thick belted miss 60 jeans with a flare 
too far. I still wear them now if they existed. But I wanted them so badly, my mum would never buy them for me. Those jeans was when I realised I need to be creative with how I dress because I'm not going to be like, my mum will not give me what I want. I also have my work money, but I, so I had to get a job and I had my work money, but I had to use that also to like go out mm-hmm. and buy petrol. So like you can always buy my sixty jeans. So eBay was a big part of my life, but so were car boot sales. I still am actually a car boot sale fanatic. And the things that you can buy in a car boot sale, I have a friend from school whose parents are really wealthy, live in this massive house. And her mum is car boot sale obsessed. And every time I'd go to a car boot sale, I'd see her mum and she'd be buying all this stuff. And she'd always be wearing designer. And at school, the girl was always wearing designer. But I knew it's because her mum was like, they were rich, but they were also short. She was savvy and she was like shopping. At the carpet sale. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. See, where where I grew up, like, honestly, I wore hand-me-downs and I wore secondhand and I wore thrifted clothing. And I kept that to myself because the kids that I grew up with were way too snobby and obtuse to actually be like, Mm. oh, actually, that's pretty smart. Like, I would have just gotten... Yeah, I didn't dragged on hardcore if I had been like oh yeah I mean I remember one time I said to like one of my peers like oh yeah I bought these at a thrift store and he was like you're wearing dead man's clothes and I was like okay (laughs) all right never gonna mention this one again cool massive eye roll at him (laughs) that actually a similar thing happened to me when I was in I think I was in secondary school and my mum, bless her, she's not the biggest shopper in the world, but when she shops, she shops quite high end, buy herself a couple of bits, and they last her like 15, 20 years. Most of my shopping, even now, comes with my mum's wardrobe back in the 70s and 80s. You know, I, I love to pilfer things from her wardrobe. But she took me into a charity shop, and we were just having a little mooch around and found found a pair of brand new, with the tag still on, French Connection jeans, and I was like, oh, these are never going to fit me. Tried them on, I was like... <sighs> when I keep them so we bought them and she was like don't tell anyone at your school because I went to I went to a private school here Mm -hmm. and my peers were from almost I would say a slightly higher social socioeconomic background than me I was like I was the poor one in the class essentially and it made me laugh because if I ever mentioned anything to them there would have been that stigma there of it being from a charity shop Mm -hmm. but I probably kept those jeans I bought them when I was, I think, 15, 16, and I had them until they no longer fitted me when I was 25. When I couldn't fit in them anymore, my heart broke because I'm the kind of person I will keep something forever. Mm. If it fits it, I'm going to wear it. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm a bit tougher on my clothes, so I could never have a pair of jeans for, like, longer than a couple of years because they just, they really, really... I've patched and replaced, but there becomes a point where you really can't patch, it and patch them up anymore. So if I get a pair of jeans that lasts for longer than like three, four years, I'm like, yes. <laughs> That's the honest side of it. I think so many people with fashion think, oh, especially in sustainable fashion, will say, well, you should be buying something. It's got to last you for X amount of years and you shouldn't be buying anything else. But you, sometimes you actually need to. It's it's ridiculous, the rules that people have. And, and I wouldn't even say they're rules. I think what it is is social media sends an image and that image becomes, this is how it is. I mean, like you'll see people that will have like really highly curated feeds and they're into sustainable fashion. It's really curated and blah, blah, blah. 
and they will never ever show you them bagging up all their fast fashion clothing and dumping it on a charity. Like, yeah, sure, they have a wardrobe of all sustainable designers now, but like, what did they have before? Everyone I know bought fast fashion at one point. Where did all that go? Is it sustainable to bag up your entire closet because you're trying to sort of project this image onto the world and dump it on a charity? We know charities receive too much stuff anyways. I would argue probably not. So there's this real like image surrounding movements that happen on social media and it's problematic. Like the face of sustainable fashion is wearing what's in your closet, whether it's fast fashion whether it's slow fashion, I've gotten to the point now where my wardrobe is a medley. I have some fast fashion that's left over from the past. I've got ethical designers and brands, and then I've got a lot of secondhand. And that's great, but it's not an overnight sort of thing. You know, it's not something where it's like, I'm going to have the most ethical and sustainable wardrobe ever, because that's not actually ethical and sustainable. It's not at all. Yeah. Moving on, we're sticking with the kind of the fashion side of things. There are a number of brands that preach slow fashion in the name of environmentalism, yet they fall short of achieving that social justice via like a lack of diversity, inclusivity, intersectionality. How do you work with brands to take them from performative allyship and and greenwashing to actually making those changes? And how can we encourage brands to take that step? Mm. So I don't actually work with that many brands. I've worked with a few, but generally the brands that I consult for are small businesses. So it's all about building something that's equitable from the ground up. Because for the big brands, I don't know, a lot of them, I'm kind of like, y'all are kind of fucked. Like you've got these shareholders that are waiting for you to give them a profit, regardless of how you're basically tearing the planet to shred. They don't care if you don't give them a profit, they're going to fire your CEO and bring them a CEO that will give them a profit. So y'all are kind of in your own mess. For a lot of these big, big high street brands, I'm just kind of like, good luck to you. Because honestly, I know that they're in a rock and a hard place. But also that's not my problem and the planet is burning. I think there's a phrase it's easier to, I think Henry Holland told me this phrase once, it's easier to turn a speedboat than like a cruise boat. And so for like the big brands, they're going to really have their work cut out for them. So I tend to sort of push people in the direction of looking to small business because from the ground up, someone who has a business First of all, they're closer to you. If you're messaging on social media, it's a very good chance that you're speaking to the person that runs that business. There's something really great there. I just think that small business is the future. I don't think that these massive multinational corporations are really going to be what changes this landscape for us. And so there's a few that I'm like, yeah, okay, you're doing cool stuff, but All in all, I'm not really rooting for them. I'm rooting for the Davids out of the Goliaths, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for small business, you have so much room to do the right thing. And that's what I tell people when people say, like, I don't really know where to begin with buying sustainably and ethically and all the, like, certifications. What do they mean? And I don't really understand. I'm like, listen, on a very, very simple note, just buy from a small business. Even if they're not like, this is the most sustainable fabric you'll ever make, their carbon footprint is still smaller than H&M's. 
And that's what we also don't grasp. The scale of some of these businesses is part of the ecological crisis. And that's the thing that the businesses don't want you to acknowledge. They do not want you to notice that having 5,000 stores worldwide, which you stock with new gear every single day, is the ecological crisis. Because that would look like drastically reforming their business plan. And they're not interested in doing that. So... I always tell people, look, if you're confused about all this, just find a small company and support them. Mm -hmm. Tell them what you want to see, because you're talking probably directly to the business owner on social media. Talk to them. Have an open line of communication with the people that you buy things from. Guide them in the right direction. Tell them what's important to you. And if they deliver that, that's great. If they don't, move on to someone who will. But I just don't think big business is going to get us where we need to be. I really don't. I don't think it's the future. It's really interesting because before you said about carbon footprint, I was like, yeah, I'm really enjoying the trends of seeing bigger businesses adopt smaller brands and bring them on and sell. I've seen lots of high street department stores, those kind of big British brands selling really small boutique businesses and ethically made fashion lines and things like that. And I was just like, that's amazing because it's getting, you know, more businesses onto their platforms and getting bigger and I'm like oh shit yeah it's still the business there's always something in it for them nobody in, it. none of these companies ever do anything to be charitable come on yeah. <laughs> but something I would like to think is that consumer power if these brands are being bought by these larger infrastructures and we start buying them and there becomes a trend that these ethically made sustainably sourced insert buzzword for the sustainability side brands are being bought and loved by consumers then they'll change the way that they make their own brands and own garments you're a Pollyanna like me if we could get them to stop (laughs) selling crap clothing altogether that would be great but will they stop doing that if people continue to buy it that's the thing and that's why we sort of have to really educate the consumer and citizen and sort of really pick these systems apart because I think these companies I mean look at like the sustainable lines that you see in all of these high street brands that are dominating currently they account for like less than one percent of like the clothing Mm. that they're putting out there and I know because I counted like I literally did this for the book it was exhausting and I hate it but I sat on websites and just would count the products that were like for sale and it would be currently you've got 300 styles of like sustainable stuff and 4,000 dresses you know and these are not sustainable dresses it's one of those things where I do think big companies are sort of doing a drop in the bucket thing but then they're also like rolling out the green carpet for themselves so that consumers will be like, oh, they're really trying. Look at what they're doing. And it's like, what are they doing? They're doing nothing except for making you feel better about patronizing from them, which isn't actually what we need. We did a live podcast episode last week or the week before. And one of the attendees asked the question. She was like, so we're talking about circularity and fashion and sustainability. And she said, would it just not be more sustainable for us to just stop shopping altogether or for the brands to stop <laughs> making everything? And I was like, yeah, 100% it would we'll stop. <laughs> stuff keeps getting made and they're going to keep ba- making the things and people are going to still keep buying them. I think this is the issue 
it is a cycle and we just I think it's just acknowledging that everyone has their own opinion even Bianca and I have we have different opinions on sustainability and I laugh at the word sustainability I laugh at the word sustainable and I refuse to use it in certain contexts Mm-hmm. And as an influencer, I find it quite difficult because I get asked to do campaigns with brands who have sustainable lines, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. And they will say, could you say about sustainable products? And I'll say, no. And I'll say, made sustainably sourced mm-hmm. and explain how it's sourced. But I will never say this is a sustainable product. And my boyfriend and I go into a little tat one day when he was like well, you're a sustainability influencer I was like no 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 I'm an influencer who talks about lifestyle and entrepreneurship but I have an interest in sustainability and therefore some of the brands I work with are sustainably focused but I don't highlight sustainability because I don't personally believe in it mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think sustainability is a real thing and this is a, always a conflict we have on yeah. the podcast because I, I we talk about it and I will never go up on stage by myself talking about sustainability first of all I'm not cleared up enough to do it but I like to do things that I personally think are through my and mainly Bianca's tuition but what I think is helping people on planet Mm -hmm. and the easier way for me to access things because I am a human who buys and likes pretty things and I will just try and find the best way to buy without hurting but that's not sustainable still so I'm not sustainable I'm still buying stuff I might buy a Zara dress from from eBay still from Mm -hmm. Zara it still might be made from polyester not recycled Mm -hmm. you know I'm still I still have my issue just because I buy it secondhand doesn't mean that it's good yeah I you know I always tell people if you're buying it secondhand you're re-navigating it out of the landfill and that's a good thing you know what I mean so like yeah don't knock yourself too hard I tell people I don't see anything wrong with buying fast fashion secondhand but always have the conversation with your friends and be like, I would only buy this on eBay because here's the reality of it. But, you know, I want to circle back. You said earlier, like, oh, everybody has an opinion on sustainability. And I'm like, I think that's the problem in our society is that like we've reached this point with the Internet where everybody has an opinion on everything. And sometimes mm. people need to just listen to people who are more informed than they are. That was a brilliant moment for me there was a moment on twitter where i was just like i don't have to comment on everything i see happening on the timeline i don't have to comment on things where i don't feel very informed about it i don't Mm -hmm. have to comment on drama that i don't want to get into just stay out of it but because the internet kind of like gives us all a megaphone there's this idea that you have to be saying something and I do feel like in our society, and I will take it back to devaluing the arts in particular, people that have no clue what they're talking about. Everybody wants to have an opinion on sustainability now. And some people should just not. Like, you don't, I, I'll get people being like, oh, sustainability is a cop out. It's all like $300 shirts. And I'm like, no, it's not. You know what I mean? Like, that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. Like, I haven't bought a shirt for $300 this year, and I probably won't because I don't have it like that, you know? But I just think we do this thing where there's our society devalues what other people know about it, devalues science. Hence, we're in this mess right now where for years, politicians that aren't scientists got to have a really heavy say on climate emergency. And look at us now, look at us now, you know, 
And it's the same with sustainability. I feel like because we talk about it in context to the fashion industry, once again, fashion industry, frivolous, girl stuff, ew, stupid. You know, I don't want to say stupid. <laughs> I try not to use stupid because that's that's ableist. But like, ew, girl stuff, silly, yeah. mm, you know? Yeah. That's why everybody's like, oh, well, sustainability is so easy. It's not complicated. It's just like, just do this. And it's like, no. But our society does that thing. It's the whole thing where the person goes to the art gallery and sees the piece of art and says, I could do that. Why do we do that in our society? Yeah. We only respect certain jobs. We only respect mm-hmm. certain people rate law school. Law school is really hard. You know, people rate... Well, they used to rate doctors until we came into this pandemic. (laughs) But we do do this thing in our society where everybody thinks that they're an expert on everything and it's killing us. It really is. Like it's it's actually harming us. Yes, it has become a thing where now like doctors and nurses aren't believed as experts in our society. And it's just like something's got to give, but we have to change this idea that every person's opinion on every topic is valued when sometimes people have no idea what they're talking about. Because in the case of COVID-19, that's killing people. Mm -hmm. And I think you say sometimes, but on the internet, it's a lot of the time people don't know what they're talking about. And that's the scary side of the internet. Yeah, totally. But it makes everyone feel like they're like super informed, you know? Yeah, because they read the headline of something. Yeah, I, I read a headline. <laughs> That's why Twitter is like, do you want to read the rest of the article now before you tweet that? <laughs> that was the shadiest thing that they've done ever, but I also loved it. What because... a weird time to exist. Like, honestly, yeah. our parents' generation who told us not to talk to strangers on the internet are now talking about, like, taking horse medicine instead of, like, <laughs> you know... <laughs> treating like a preventable illness I'm like how did we get to this place I'm so confused oh my god I'm gonna end it here because we have so many questions we could ask you but it's just we will go on forever so I feel like we have to have an in-person date to ensure that we can continue the conversation perfect so thank you so much for having us and just before we go for the people who are living under a rock it'd be great just if you can share where they can find you on the internet and also tell us about your new book that has just been released and we're very very excited to share that with the world yeah so I'm on Instagram at Audra Barber I don't do a lot of sponsored content so my work is sponsored through Patreon where you can get like a daily newsletter and update however I do have a book coming out September 23rd actually by the time you're hearing this podcast it's already come out so That book is called Consumed. It is available at Waterstones and your favorite indie retailer. And yeah, it's a bit my biography, but also a little bit of how I came to talk about all these topics. Basically, it's a shortened, condensed version of this is the person I was. This is when I started to figure out things were pretty bad. And this is who I am today. And here's what you can do, you know? So uh, if you're interested in it, it does have pictures. It has illustrations. I like illustrations. (laughs) Do check it out and uh, let me know what you think. I can also be found on Twitter at Aja says hello. Please be polite. Twitter, I don't know. It just incites people to be really ornery. (laughs) And I don't know why, because you're just there with your cats. 
you there, just give us daily updates. So. There is something about Twitter that tells people like, be an ornery jerk today. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a lack of sleep? Are you mad with the world? Jump on Twitter. So we've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainably Influence and make sure that you're following us and liking and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.